You're listening to the Menzorea Podcast, and this is the story of Colin Norris. Glasgow, Scotland, on the 12th of February, 1976. After school, he went to college and studied travel and tourism, and he worked for several years in that industry before deciding that he wanted to change careers. At 22, he moved into nursing. He said he felt a calling for the profession, and that it was a job that not everyone could do. But he felt called to do it, and to help people and to make a difference in people's lives. So in 1998, he studied for a higher nursing degree at Dundee University. He qualified in 2001 and began to work as a staff nurse in Leeds General Infirmary after his graduation in October 2001. He had been transferred to St. James's University Hospital in order to get more experience but he really didn't like the move and decided to continue taking shifts at Leeds General Infirmary as agency staff. He worked on Ward 36, an orthopedic ward, dealing with broken bones and fractures. He was well-liked by the other staff and was doing well in his private life. He had just purchased a house in Leeds and was popular with his colleagues. He'd never been in trouble. Not, that is, until the 20th of November. 2002. On the 11th of November 2002, Mrs. Ethel Hall was admitted to Leeds General Infirmary. She was 86 and a retired shopkeeper. She was well known in her neighbourhood because of her work and from the milk delivery service that she also ran. She lived at home with her husband, to whom she'd been married for 50 years. She was quiet, but a no-nonsense kind of woman. Mrs. Hall was admitted to Ward 36 with a broken hip. She'd had a fall. She had a history of pernicious anemia, but was otherwise healthy. However, it became apparent early into her stay at the hospital that she was displaying confused behaviour. She had the operation to fix the fractured hip on the 14th of November, and seemed to be recovering well, though she still seemed confused. On the 19th of November, in the afternoon, Mrs. Hall was found slumped over and passed out on a commode, and she was given oxygen, and she recovered consciousness. When the shift change came that evening, at a quarter to nine, the new team were told to keep a particular eye on her, because of the incident. That night, the team consisted of a nurse practitioner, who was supervising several wards, and two staff nurses, with one healthcare assistant on that particular ward. After the shift change, Mrs. Hall said that she was in pain and received coproximal. When the pain hadn't subsided, the house officer prescribed tramadol, a stronger opioid-based drug. She was also quite confused during the early part of the evening shift, and at one point had taken off her night clothes, thrown off her bed covers, and had tried to get out of bed. Besides all that, though, 
nothing else was noted on her records for that night, and everything appeared to have been quiet. Until 5 a.m. She was heard making loud, choking noises, and staff nurse Colin Norris went to treat her, along with his colleague, Anne Sheehan. He suctioned her mouth to see if there was any obstruction there, but there wasn't. They checked her heart rate, blood pressure, and oxygen levels, and put the oxygen mask back on her, and called the doctors. Initially, they suspected an opioid overdose, given the two medications she had been given earlier in the day, and further expertise was sought. After a consult, it was decided to give Mrs. Hall an antidote drug called naloxone to treat the overdose. But Mrs. Hall remained unresponsive. The doctor came by to check on her and said that she was either suffering with the overdose, as had been initially suspected, or that she had developed hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, or maybe she'd had a stroke. The on-call medical team were with another patient, and while the house officer was on the phone, Nurse Norris told her that the blood tests had come back, showing that Mrs. Ward had dangerously low blood sugar level, 1.5 millimoles per litre. Anything below 4.0 millimoles per litre is considered hypoglycemia, but 3.0 and lower can result in coma, irreversible brain damage, and even death. It was thought that Mrs. Hall may have received an injection of insulin by mistake, which might have lowered her blood sugar to dangerous levels. At 6am she was given her first bag of glucose to try and raise the levels back up and reverse the coma. She was given 600 grams of glucose in 11 doses over the next 36 hours. Her blood sugar did return to normal after two hours, but she never regained consciousness. There was no obvious explanation for the hypoglycemia, and her doctors were at a loss to understand why. The blood tests that the hospital ran ruled out an array of potential diagnoses, and eventually her blood was sent on for testing at a specialist lab in Guilford. There, they measured insulin and the level of another protein, C-peptide. When the body produces insulin, it also produces C-peptide in similar amounts, so if insulin is present with no C-peptide, it may indicate that the insulin was administered. And there was no C-peptide showing from the results in Mrs. Hall's blood sample. But there was a huge amount of insulin, over 12,000 picomoles per litre. This was over a hundred times what a normal reading should have been. It was thought that this amount of insulin, with no C-peptides present, would have to be the result of the injection of a large amount of insulin, and the amount was so large that there was no conceivable way that the medical professionals could see such a dose being administered accidentally. So, the West Yorkshire police were informed. They began looking into the incident of a possible malicious administration of insulin on the 6th of December, 2002. A few days later, on the 11th of December, Mrs. Hall passed away. A post-mortem found that she had brain damage consistent with severe hypoglycemia. A murder investigation, dubbed Operation Bevel, began after Mrs. Hall's death. It was headed up by Detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg, who had just finished up a review of 22 deaths associated with Dr. Harold Shipman. 
They started off by interviewing all the staff that were in and around Ward 36, where Mrs. Hall had been the night of her death. Of course, one of those staff members was Colin Norris, and his colleagues had told the police that he had in fact made statements to them about Mrs. Hall. He had said to the other staff nurse that he didn't think Ethel looked right, and that, quote, whenever I do nights, someone dies. It's usually in the mornings, about 5.15am, end quote. The nurse practitioner also said that Colin Norris had told her that he had a funny feeling about Ethel. But both nurses said that they thought nothing of the commons, as they were pretty common in the nursing sector. Nurses often have feelings or an intuition about the well-being of their patients, and they would sometimes make off-color jokes about them to deal with the stress of their jobs. In the course of the investigation, it was also found that Norris was the last person to attend to Mrs. Hall before she fell into her coma that morning, and was also the last member of staff to access the fridge, which stored the non-controlled medications, such as insulin. So Colin had been with Mrs. Hall, and had apparently predicted her death. The police zeroed in on him as their main suspect in the murder of an elderly woman. He was arrested at his home on the 11th of December 2002 and taken to the Bridewell Police Station in the city. They began their interviews with him the next day at around half three. He was questioned for four hours and 14 minutes in six different interviews, and after this, he was released on bail. He had been in police custody for a total of 29 hours. In his interviews, he was cooperative and answered all the questions that the police had for him. He had duty solicitor Jim Littlehales with him throughout the interviews. Later, Littlehales would say that it had never crossed his mind that Colin had anything to hide. The first two interviews concentrated on Norris's background and his experience as a nurse. At the end of the third interview, he was finally asked about Ethel Hall and it wasn't until the final interview that the police put it to him that he had injected Mrs. Hall with insulin. Colin Norris denied that he had done this. The police officer that was interviewing him said, quote, I'll tell you now, Ethel Hall was administered externally a large, a very large dose of insulin, which contributed to her deterioration in health, resulting in her death. Fact. End quote. But Colin insisted that he hadn't done anything. He had been arrested because Ethel Hall had been in his care when she developed hypoglycemia, and he had made those comments to his colleagues, and so he was brought in for questioning on that basis. To him, that was all. Later, senior officers would say that, in addition to those reasons, Colin was also brought in because there were suspicions about Norris's involvement in other deaths. But there's no paper trail to corroborate this in their files. The arrest and questioning had a huge impact on Colin's life immediately. He had called his mother just after his release. He was very upset, sobbing, and saying that he couldn't believe that he had been arrested, that he was suspected of some sort of wrongdoing. He was suspended from work, despite his colleagues rallying around him, and even throwing a party shortly after to show support for him. He had to sell his house and leads, and move back to Glasgow as part of his bail conditions. But unlike Norris's mother, 
the police officers that had dealt with him had a completely different impression of Colin Norris. Rather than the sobbing and upset man that his mum saw, they thought that he appeared quote-unquote exceptionally arrogant during his interviews. In the tapes, he does come off as confident and fairly unconcerned with what's going on. He was by no means defensive, but he was assertive in his explanations to the police, particularly when it came to telling them about how things worked in the hospital. He certainly didn't seem worried, afraid, or even intimidated by his questioning. The day after he was released on bail, the police decided that the deaths of patients on the wards that Colin had worked would have to be investigated. Any of those that had occurred from hypoglycemic incidents, or where Norris had attended at the time of death, or where there was a sudden change in the patient's condition, or in other cases where the death seemed suspicious, they would have to be looked into. Any deaths falling into those categories would be deemed high priority for investigation. At this point in the investigation, the only evidence against Colin per se were the statements of his colleagues repeating what Colin had purportedly said the night of Ethel Hall's death, the fact of her death, and the contents of the six interviews with him. There was never any investigation to ascertain if there was any other possible explanation for the death of Ethel Hall. Once Colin Norris became the focus of the investigation, that was the line of inquiry pursued, to the exclusion of all else. 72 deaths were identified in the time frame that the police had set out to look into. A form was filled out with details of each death, including basic patient information, whether hypoglycemia was involved, and whether the deceased was diabetic, and so on. Out of those 72, 18 cases were then deemed high priority on the basis of the information gathered in the forms. They were reviewed by a geriatrician, a pharmacologist, and a toxicologist. Of course, the selection of these cases was predetermined by whether or not Colin Norris had any contact with the deceased. Patients whose pathology might have fitted the requirements but were not in contact with Norris did not have their deaths deemed suspicious, and there was no investigation into these. Either way, Operation Bevel was one of the largest investigations carried out by the West Yorkshire Police. 7,200 statements were taken, and 2,300 people with connections to the inquiry were recorded on HOMES, the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System. Side note, guys, I adore that this system is called HOMES. I get a kick out of it every time I read it. It never gets old. Anyway, after his first questioning by the police, Norris was not questioned again until May 2003. That month, on the 13th, he was rearrested and taken to Killingbeck Police Station. He'd been due to check in with the police the day after, in accordance with his bail conditions, but he was taken in the day before, anyhow. He was brought to the station at half-seven that morning, and was interviewed six times, totaling three hours and thirty-nine minutes. He was asked again about Ethel Hall, and this time around Colin was a bit more combative with the police. 
when the test results from Guilford Laboratories were put to him, detailing the presence of insulin but no C-peptide, his solicitor interjected, quote, There's little he can comment on the expert evidence. He's not a medical expert, and whilst it can be put to him, my advice to him would be to not answer anything, because clearly he doesn't know, and he's no expert, end quote. But that didn't put the police off. They also tried to discuss in detail the process of testing Mrs. Hall's blood in the lab, but the police officers were just reading off the report, and when Colin put questions to them, they too were unable to answer due to lack of medical knowledge. Despite this more assertive behavior in this interview, Norris cooperated fully with his answers about procedures for handling and administrating medication on the wards that he worked on. He answered questions about what courses he had attended in college for his qualifications. The police were particularly interested in a lecture he had attended at Dundee University about insulin and diabetes, but Colin told him it was entirely possible that he had been at such a lecture, but could not recall at that point in time. He asked the police why it was that he had been arrested initially back in December 2002, but they would not give any real answer to that. He had been arrested because he was in charge of a team of patients and one of them had died, launching a murder investigation. That was all they would say. He also admitted that it was quite possible that he had made the statements to his colleagues about Mrs. Hall and about patients passing away in the mornings. But again, he couldn't recall it specifically. He did take the time to point out that neither of those statements actually predicted Mrs. Hall's death, like the police alleged. He was again released on bail. Norris would be rearrested three more times over the next ten months, and he would remain on bail. That said, he was allowed to retain his passport, and in fact left the country with police permission a few times during that period. Very strange indeed. On the 26th of April 2004, Norris was again arrested and taken to Killingbeck Police Station, where he was interviewed another six times, totaling three hours and 49 minutes. This time, the police didn't just have questions about the death of Ethel Hall. After a number of months of investigations, they had more names to put to Norris and his solicitors. He was asked about a patient of his, Mrs. Bridget Burke. She was 89 when she was admitted to Ward 36 on the 16th of June, 2002. She'd had a fall at home and had broken her hip, and she suffered from ill health generally. In the past, she had recovered from both a stroke and breast cancer. While she was admitted to the hospital, she ended up with a bacterial infection, and on the 21st of June, she was found to be unresponsive by her nurse, Colin Norris. When her blood was tested, she had very low blood sugar, and the doctors gave her glucose, but she died the next morning. Her body had been exhumed in the course of the investigation, but the pathologist's examination was inconclusive. On the 12th of June 2002, Doris Ludlam was transferred to Ward 36 after suffering a fall and breaking her hip on another ward in the hospital. On the 16th of June, it was discovered that she had had a high level of potassium in her blood, and Colin Norris administered the usual treatment for this on instructions of the doctor. 
insulin mixed with glucose. Her bloods returned to normal and she had her hip surgery, but she went into hypoglycemic coma on the 25th of June and she died two days later. Colin was asked if he recognized her during this interview, but he said he didn't remember her. Despite this, the police pressed on and asked about her care at the hospital before her death. Then they came out and point-blank asked him if he had killed the woman. Norris denied this, and his work record showed that he was not present when her hypoglycemia was detected. After a break in the interview, they dropped that line of questioning around Mrs. Ludlam. Later in the year, in October 2002, Irene Cooks was admitted to St. James's Hospital in Leeds with chronic bronchitis and emphysema, and she was in need of a hip repair. A week after her operation, on the 19th of October, she was found totally unresponsive and had fallen into a hypoglycemic coma. She was given repeated infusions of glucose, and her blood sugar eventually rose, but rose too much, and so she was given insulin to bring it back down, at which point she became hypoglycemic again. She passed away on the 20th of October, 2002. Another patient, identified only as Mrs. I.M., was admitted to St. James's Hospital with a fractured femur in November 2002. Colin was the nurse that looked after her overnight, the night of her admission, and she was found unresponsive on the morning of the 23rd. She died later that day. Vera Wilby was admitted to Leeds General Infirmary on the 2nd of May 2002 with a broken hip, although she also had other health problems including high blood pressure and a heart condition. She was 90 years old. She had her hip operation on the 5th of May, but on the 17th of May, she ended up with hypoglycemia and with very, very low blood sugar levels. She was given glucose to correct this a number of times that day, and she was eventually moved to a nursing home. She passed away from unrelated causes in 2003. Norris's solicitor pointed out in this interview that it was unlikely that his client was going to be able to remember the patients in question, never mind the details of their particular cases, as they dated back over two years. Norris did say, however, that he recognized Mrs. Wilby from a picture he was shown. She had a distinctive haircut, and that had jogged his memory. The other women Norris could not positively identify. He had memories of patients that may have been the women in question, but nothing that he was certain of. He asked the officers for more details about the women to try and jog his memory, but they didn't provide anything further to him. He was asked about each woman and whether he had injected insulin into them. He denied it each time. Colin asked again for an explanation of his initial arrest, but was told yet again that he was on bail for that and it was not up for discussion. He wanted to know how that arrest related to the questioning that he was now faced with, but no explanation was given. He was released again on police bail just after five o'clock that evening. Norris was arrested yet again on the 15th of September 2004 and interviewed for a total of two hours and 44 minutes. This time, the questions only related to Mrs. Burke, who had been a stroke and breast cancer survivor. She had developed hypoglycemia and very quickly passed away, 
despite the administration of glucose. Naris again said that he did not recognize her photograph, but the detectives didn't seem to believe this. Colin told them that many of the elderly patients had passed away while on the ward, and that it wasn't unusual. He therefore had no specific memory of Mrs. Burke. Too much time had passed, he said. He was released back on bail the same afternoon. What would be Colin Norris's final police interview took place on the 23rd of November, 2005, and lasted just over two hours. The first thing that happened was that he was informed that he would no longer be asked any questions in relation to Mrs. I.M., as the Crown Prosecution Service had said that there was insufficient evidence to take that case any further, but he was given no information as to why that particular case had been dropped. His solicitor told the police that his client would again not be able to answer questions in relation to experts' views of the blood tests and so on, as Norris himself was not an expert. But the officers nevertheless outlined the expert reports, stating that the women had suffered from hypoglycemia as the result of an injection of insulin. Colin was asked again about the procedures on the ward for handling insulin. It was put to Colin that basically everyone that he worked with had better recall for the women that it had been alleged that he had a hand in killing. Statements taken from Colin's colleagues showed that this statement was untrue. Many of the hospital staff had to consult records to remember the patients in question, but this was not what the police had decided to tell Colin and his solicitor at the time. Colin just kept repeating, quote, I never killed anyone, end quote. On the 12th of October 2005, Colin was charged with the murders of Ethel Hall, Bridget Burke, Doris Ludlam, and Irene Crooks, and the attempted murder of Vera Wilby, and remanded in custody until he was released on conditional bail in March 2006. It would be more than two years before he would face trial for the multiple charges. The trial of Colin Norris began on the 16th of October, 2007, in Newcastle Crown Court, before Mr. Justice Griffith Williams. Eighty witnesses were called for the prosecution, with a further 30 written statements entered into evidence with agreement from the defence. The prosecution's case was basically that the results from the blood tests done on Ethel Hall showed that she had been given a huge dose of insulin which caused her hypoglycemia, and that further cases of fatal hypoglycemia were so rare that those women could only have died from the injection of insulin. They argued that Colin Norris was the only thing that connected the women. He was on duty at or about the time each of the women developed hypoglycemia. The Crown claimed that Norris had told clear lies during his interviews and had predicted Mrs. Hall's death. They also wanted to show that the defendant had a dislike of elderly people, and that there was an amount of insulin missing from the ward that Colin worked on. Much of the evidence presented at the trial came from expert witnesses. Sixteen were called by the prosecution, including a geriatrician, a pharmacologist, and experts in chemistry, diabetes, cardiology, neuropathy, stroke, forensic pathology, and biochemistry. Many possible causes of Mrs. Hall's death were ruled out, including a tumour of the pancreas. The expert evidence 
mainly centred on the tests that had been carried out on her blood sample in Guilford Laboratories. The defence called five experts, a biochemist, a forensic pathologist, a cancer specialist, a geriatrician, and a diabetes specialist. In her testimony before the court, Dr. Emma Ward, who was present during the treatment of Ethel Hall, said, quote, I wondered whether she could somehow have been given an injection of insulin to cause the low blood sugar level. It wasn't necessarily malicious. Patients are sometimes given the wrong medication, somebody else's medication. I mean, we just didn't know, end quote. Which described to the jury how it was that the investigation began, and when it became clear that there was no way that the amount of insulin required was accidentally administered, the police began to focus their investigation on Norris. But Norris's defence argued that there was absolutely no evidence of Colin having given insulin injections to the four other women. They challenged the lab result of Mrs. Hall's blood sample, and said that if she had in fact died due to the administration of an insulin injection, perhaps someone else had gained entrance to the ward that night and carried this out. The defence made much of the problems that they saw in the Guilford lab results. They pointed out that, although Mrs. Hall's blood was tested for insulin immediately, the test for the presence of C-peptide wasn't carried out until five days after this. There was no retest of the sample performed, as is standard. On top of all of that, the threshold level for the detection of C-peptide was higher at that lab than in others, and so therefore there could have been more in that sample that would be non-detectable than from any other lab. One of the experts to give testimony was Dr. Gwen Wark, a biochemist. She had accepted that antibody tests to rule out insulin autoimmune syndrome, IAS, had not been run, but she was of the opinion that IAS was not present in Mrs. Hall's case because there was no C-peptide present with a high level of insulin returned in the test results. She confirmed that the level of insulin in Mrs. Hall's blood was one of the highest that the lab had ever dealt with, and she also confirmed that despite this, they did not retest the sample to ensure its accuracy, because, quote, the result was consistent with the administration of insulin, end quote. The defence had biochemist Dr. Adel Ishmael give evidence on the stand regarding IAS. He said that the only way to tell between a case of IAS and insulin injection resulting in hypoglycemia was to do a polyethylene glycol test, which was never done on Miss Hall's sample. He also told the court that the Guilford results were misleading due to the level below which C-peptide was discounted by the lab. It was higher than in other labs. He also gave evidence that pernicious anemia, which Miss Hall suffered from, was a predisposing factor in IAS, and that her sample more closely fitted with a diagnosis of IAS, in his opinion. The prosecution experts were all asked by the defence to consider a particular case of IAS known as the Cambridge case, where a high insulin level was found, with very little C-peptide. A geriatrician who gave evidence for the prosecution said that the odds of a patient contracting IAS were less than winning the lottery. A pharmacologist testified that he had, quote, absolutely no doubt, end quote, that Mrs. Hall's hypoglycemia was caused by a massive insulin injection. 
The only tests that the prosecution had to base their allegations on were those in Mrs. Hall's case. They had her blood samples and her post-mortem. In the cases of the four other women, all the prosecution had to rely on was their charts and medical records from their stay in the hospital prior to their deaths, or in the case of Mrs. Wilby, her discharge. The Crown argued that the blood sugar charts in the files of the other four were consistent with a case of injected insulin, and that IAS was so rare that it would be, quote, very extraordinary to find five cases of IAS in the time span of 18 months or so. Another medical expert told the court that there was no clinical explanation for these cases except the administration of large doses of insulin or a similar drug. The defence referenced a number of other cases, both in Leeds and elsewhere in the UK, where a patient had developed hypoglycemia inexplicably and had passed away, but where there was no suspicion of foul play. The prosecution stated that these cases were irrelevant. Another important aspect of the prosecution's case was that Colin Norris was said to have predicted Mrs. Hall's death in his statements, that he had a bad feeling about Mrs. Hall's health, and that people always died on his shifts, and things usually go wrong for him about five in the morning. The defence pointed out that Mrs. Hall hadn't died until three weeks after Norris's having allegedly said this, and that his colleagues had thought nothing of these statements when they were initially said. The prosecution alleged that Colin Norris had told lies to the police when they initially interviewed him. This was based on his statements about his knowledge of hypoglycemia. The prosecution asserted that he had said in one of the interviews that he thought that the condition was treated by giving sugary foods and drinks, but the police found that he had had contact with patients with low blood sugar and had given glucose to treat this. They alleged that these statements showed that Norris was trying to deflect attention away from other possible cases in his past in the hospital. But transcripts from the first interview show that Colin Norris had commented that he had no experience carrying out a procedure of giving dextrose to patients, and that his reference to giving sugary foods and drink was in relation to patients who were still conscious and responsive. Prosecution counsel also put forward the assertion that a thousand units of insulin were missing from the ward Norris worked around the time of Mrs. Hall's death, but it was pointed out that the hospital had very poor stock-taking of non-controlled medicines, and that the record-keeping was also subpar. Further, none of the staff that were working on the ward in the days prior to Mrs. Hall's death had seen how much, or how little, insulin was available on the ward. The Crown also asserted that Colin had given injections of morphine or diamorphine to Vera Wilby and Doris Ludlam before he injected them with insulin to ensure that his alleged victims were docile before he injected them with the fatal doses. But it turned out that when Colin had administered their drugs, there was another nurse present and there was absolutely no chance of Colin having stolen the painkillers because the control drugs were subject to much more stringent controls. The prosecution went so far as to say that Norris had broken into the sharps bin and had taken any dribbles of morphine from disposed-of needles to administer to his patients. The claims that Norris had a dislike of elderly patients came from statements that he had made in his interview of the 12th of December, 2002, when he said that he had initially found taking care of and bathing older female patients difficult, 
while he was on a student placement. But the prosecution neglected to mention that he had gone on to say that he had soon gotten over this. Colin Norris took the stand to give evidence in his own defense. In relation to questions put to him about him developing and perfecting a method to continue to kill patients, he told prosecuting counsel that he could hardly carry on killing patients given that he had never killed anyone in the first place. Throughout his questioning by the prosecution, he steadfastly denied his involvement in murders in the hospital. The trial lasted 19 weeks, and the judge's summing up lasted a whopping five days, given all the complex medical expert witness testimony. The jurors began their deliberation on the 27th of February, and those two lasted five days. They returned on the 3rd of March 2008 with a majority verdict. Colin Norris was found guilty of murder and attempted murder by a majority of 11 to 1. He received a life sentence the next day, and Mr. Justice Griffith Williams spoke directly to Norris, saying that he was, quote, an arrogant and manipulative man with a real dislike of elderly patients. Despite months of evidence, I am no wiser as to your motive. You are, I have absolutely no doubt, a thoroughly evil and dangerous man. End quote. Collins' appeal was heard on the 9th of December 2009. His legal team argued that the trial judge had failed to direct the jury in relation to the cross admissibility of the evidence regarding hypoglycemia in the five women concerned. That is, they argued that there was a lack of clarity in his instructions as to the weight that the jury could give to the evidence relating to one or more purported victims in determining the facts of the other cases in question. But his conviction was upheld, and the Court of Appeal found that there was no misdirection of the jury. Since the failure of Collins' appeal, there have been a number of independent investigations into his case, and a campaign declaring his innocence has begun. The reliability of the test taken on Mrs. Hall's blood sample has also been questioned further. When she collapsed, the blood sample said that she was hypoglycemic, and so glucose was given. That first sample had not been stored properly to test for insulin, and so seven hours later, another blood sample was taken and sent to the lab. Because of glucose being administered, Ethel Hall's blood sugar had returned to normal. She was no longer hypoglycemic, and so some think it's not a valid test for whether insulin poisoning had occurred. Dr. Derek Teal said that there was a, quote, abnormally large amount of insulin in the circulation, together with a correspondingly low C-peptide, a situation which is unarguably consistent with an injection of insulin, end quote. That said, in some rare cases of IAS, it was found that C-peptide was found in very low levels in relation to insulin levels in patients. One of the main features of the case against Norris was the agreement between both the prosecution and the defence witnesses on the rarity of cases of severe hypoglycemia in patients who were not diabetic. But in 2011, this conclusion was challenged by Professor Vincent Marks, who has a reputation as an expert on insulin poisonings. After a study he conducted, he concluded that the condition was 
actually relatively common, and said that he found spontaneous hypoglycemia to affect 5-10% to of all non-diabetic elderly patients who had other risk factors, including serious health conditions. All of the women that Nars had been found guilty of murdering had other serious health concerns before their bone breaks and before their spontaneous hypoglycemia. Professor Marx did say, however, on reviewing Mrs. Hall's results, that he does believe someone gave her insulin at some point. There were further criticisms of the testing procedures used for Mrs. Hall's sample. Only one sample was taken, and that sample was only tested once, so there is no way to confirm that there was no error in the test. A doctor who gave evidence at the trial of Norris said that one in every 250 results could be wrong. In late 2011, Norris's case was submitted to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, citing this new evidence, and in 2012, the commission advised that it would undertake a full investigation into the case. No results from this investigation have yet been announced or published. Colin Norris, who these days prefers to be called Colin Campbell, is still serving out his sentence. His mother travels to Durham Prison every month to visit him, and has never doubted his innocence. There is an ongoing campaign to clear Norris of his convictions. I have to admit that I'm a little bit torn about this case. I feel certain that the case against Norris for the murder and attempted murder in the four cases that were identified by the police are completely lacking in evidence. It seems clear that there were other deaths that had occurred in the same way and that were not deemed suspicious, and his presence on the ward was the sole indicator of an apparent murder. There is absolutely no physical evidence in these cases. This is unlike what happened in the Shipman case, where deaths were identified and then exhumations took place, confirming the suspicion that Shipman's patients had died of massive overdoses of diamorphine that had not been prescribed to them. From a brief and completely out-of-my-depth look into spontaneous hypoglycemia in non-diabetic patients, it seems to me that it is far more common in elderly patients than in young people, and it's often found in cases where there's another disease that contributes to it, either due to the effects of that condition or from the medication taken to treat it. It's not entirely unknown, and although it is more common in Japan than in other places, it does happen. But it still seems pretty rare, and it also seems as if it's far more common for those cases of non-diabetic hypoglycemia to be the reason that a person is admitted to hospital, rather than it developing while an inpatient for an unrelated illness. It does seem a bit extraordinary that Colin Norris was present for so many of these types of deaths, but then there are other similar cases where he wasn't present and those are not considered suspicious. Dr. Vincent Marx asserts that cases such as this are far more common than once thought, due to a lack of studies on the matter. In terms of Mrs. Hall, the situation is far less clear-cut the tests of her blood sample is a little bit problematic. There's only one test, and no test was done for the substance that could have indicated that the production of insulin was due to an autoimmune response. And from the public information, we can't tell what other medication she was on at the time of her passing. But she had a huge amount of insulin in her system, and Colin Norris was the last person to attend to her, 
and the last person to access the fridge where the insulin was kept. I think it's certain that this case deserves to be re-examined, but it may be that no matter how genuine an attempt is made to get to the bottom of what actually happened, vital evidence was never collected at the outset of the incident. This one may be the kind of case we never get to the bottom of. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I read every one of them, and your feedback is vital for the growth and improvements to the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, and we also have a discussion group on Facebook you can check out. If you just want to get in touch, shoot an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made with the help of our supporters on Patreon. This week, big thanks go out to our newest patrons, Carmelo Dwyer, Vivian, and a new top-tier supporter, Eamon Brady. You can look forward to an episode chosen and produced by Eamon in the near future. So, if you'd like to help support the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com mensreapod. There's stickers and magnets and badges up for grabs, as well as bonus content and early releases. I am disgustingly grateful for every dollar donated. Thanks also to some of our more recent five-star reviewers over on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Mamadine 9 Thanks so much for your five stars. I'm glad that you enjoy the content. To Uber Chic Polish, one of our lovely patrons, thank you for your five stars as well. To Mynela RDS, I hope you're enjoying listening to the older episodes. And a quick note on that, I'm going back and uh, trying to re-record the first four or five or so where there are some issues with the sound. So hopefully those will be up before Christmas. So if you haven't listened to the earlier episodes or you tried to and couldn't because of the awful echo, hopefully by the new year all of those will be up and sounding a bit better. Thank you also to N. Murdoch. Right to the story, that's it. No beating about the bush with me. Let's get right down to the business. And last one, thank you to Erica from Southern Fried True Crime. That is another excellent podcast out there. If you are not listening to you, you absolutely have to. Erica has a beautiful voice and really produces great content. So go listen if you haven't already. Thanks very much, Erica. Next time, we're going to be looking at the case of a young boy who seemed to have an obsession with karate and with starting fires. Thanks as usual to Rona McHugh for help with sound. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's story are in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Initially, they suspected an opioid overdose. And li- initially, they suspected an opioid, an o- an opioid, an opioid overdose. <laughs>